Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. We are in our stretch run here at the end of the year, putting together some really good podcasts for you. This one is fantastic. I really enjoyed doing it. You're going to like it, too. I want to take a moment here before we start to just remind you that in this stretch run, in this end of the year kind of run up, we need you to head over to the website, strongtowns.org, and sign up to become a member. We rely on you. We rely on our members to help fund what we're doing. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that we need your donation. We need your help and we need you to support this podcast. We uh, do a lot of work here on the blog, here on the podcast, here at Strong Towns, sharing this message, developing this content, and really having a big impact on the conversation going on in this country. If you want a high return on your investment, head on over to strongtowns.org and make a donation today. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have Dave Runyon. Dave's the Executive Director of City Unite, which is a nonprofit organization that exists to help government, business, and faith-based leaders unite around common causes. He and Jay Pathak wrote a book called The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door. I read this book and thought it was very compelling and wanted to have Dave on the podcast, and he's generously agreed. Dave, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) I'm happy to have you. You know, we from time to time talked to people who are involved in religious type pursuits. We just had Eric Jacobson on a couple months ago. He wrote a book called Sidewalks in the Kingdom, and it was real well received by people. I I think there's a hunger for this kind of thing. So let's get into it. All Uh, right. Sounds great. I want to start with the meeting that you called in Denver with the other pastors and, and invited the mayor with a real basic question, you know, what can we do? And kind of a revelation for you came out of that meeting. Can you just set that up and explain that whole process? You bet. Like Eric Jacobson, I served as a pastor here in the Denver metro area. I was actually up in Arvada, which is a suburb in the northwest part of the city. Worked at a couple of great faith communities, but really had a just kind of a, a burning desire to begin to go wider than just a single local congregation and started to dream about bringing together the faith community in a very specific part of our city and to dream about what is it that we could do together that we could never do alone. Some of my friends and I started to have that conversation. We started to dream about what that could look like. Sadly, when we started to think about how we could best serve our city together, we didn't know our city well enough to to know what would be the smartest thing for us to do. As a result, that led us to begin to learn about our city, and we did that through the eyes of our elected officials and some of the civic leaders. We started to meet with the police chief and the city manager, and about five and a half years ago, we were sitting in a room with the mayor. We would always ask these civic leaders two questions. We'd ask them, what's your dream for our city? And if you could wave a magic wand and change something or eradicate something off the face of our community, what would it be? And that second question, we were always just loading them up, trying to figure out, trying to answer our right, questions. Right. So when we asked the magic wand question to our mayor, 
uh, he had a long list of things that he shared with us. You know, he said, I want to live in a city where there's no elderly shut-ins, where there's no single moms below the poverty line. There's no finance. You know, he just had 11 or 12 different things. But the part that just has literally changed the trajectory of my life is that at the very end, just very much in passing, he said, if you want to do the best thing for a city, you would start a neighboring movement. He shared with us that the closer that, that his observation, the observation of the city manager and the assistant city manager was that the closer people are connected to one another, the less strain and, and weight there is on all of the systems that our local governments are trying to provide for people in need. He said, you know, if, if we could just become a community of great neighbors, it would eradicate or drastically reduce every social issue that they're trying to manage and trying to face in our city. You can imagine what that feels like when yeah, you're, you're a faith leader. You're a pastor, right? <laughs> uh, hey, can but, you guys just get along better? Yeah. yeah. Can you Number one, can you get along? Oh, it gets way worse than that. It, yeah. it, it, can you get along better? And and also, hey, I got an idea. We're, everyone in that room is basically making, you know, they're all faith leaders. They're all making their living, trying to help people actually live out their faith. And when when God uses your mayor to tell you and say, hey, the smartest thing you could do is actually this idea of loving your neighbor, which is like intertwined in everything you guys say that you believe and teach. It's a pretty humiliating, painful, but also at the same time, sacred moment. I love that juxtaposition of, you know, the humility of it. The fact that, as you describe in the book, here's a person who's a secular leader, the mayor, telling you, hey, you heard this guy, Jesus, he says, you know, love your neighbor. If you guys just did that, uh, wouldn't that be? <laughs> it would change everything. Yeah. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? So th- this is in your wheelhouse now. You're like, okay, well, w- we can do that. But you discovered it's not as easy as that, is it? No, it's not. You know, and we've learned a lot. One of the best things that we did is that we didn't, we didn't start off by saying, all right, we're going to try to start. And we actually, just as a group, of leaders, we said, you know, maybe we should actually just try this in our own neighborhoods. And so we took about, there was about a four month window where we made a commitment with each other that we were going to begin to slow down and to try to just do some small things to get to know some of our personal neighbors better. And I think looking back five years now in, in the rearview mirror, you know, that was something we just fell backwards into, but that was one of the most, because what happened, you know, every, a lot of things flow down from leadership. You know, things can flow bottom up, things can flow top down. But for us, it was really important to have a lot of these leaders in our city actually beginning to experiment with living this out in their own lives. Because then when we did begin to roll things out at a, at a larger scale, it was coming out of stuff that we were living out of, not just a bunch of stuff that we had drafted up on a whiteboard. Let's talk about how you went about doing this. I think the first thing is maybe to have an understanding of who actually your neighbor is. There's a sense, and I'm Catholic. We go to church every Sunday. My neighbors are the people in the pew and the people in the community and the people uh, I run into and the people at the store. Hey, you know, everybody's my neighbor. Hey, but you actually said, okay, fine. That's great in a metaphorical sense, but in a real sense, you have some real neighbors. Let's start out with this thing about who your neighbor is. And from a Christian standpoint, what do lessons like the Good Samaritan tell us about who our neighbor actually is? One of the things that, that we had to face really early on, and this came from another civic leader, we this lady, assistant city manager, her name was Vicki Ryer. As we started to research and dream about how to start a neighboring movement and to spark something like that, we were in a conversation with a large group with, with Vicki, and Vicki said to us, 
you don't think that there's any difference in the way that people, that Christians and non-Christians treat their literal neighbors, do you? It was our second most painful moment. Actually, that might have been even more painful than the mayor moment. (laughs) Right. That's actually true. We actually started to argue with her at first and we realized, oh my goodness. And and so we started to try to reconcile how, how, how can that be? How can, if the central teaching of the text is love God with everything you have and love your neighbor to yourself, but if you're only going to do one thing, do that. And then yet as people that associate themselves as Christians or followers of Jesus, you know, no matter what stream you're in, how do we get to a point where those people aren't differentiated in any way in, in how they treat their literal neighbors? What we learned is that there's a number of things that people of faith have done. And there's a number of things that I did for most of my life that allowed me to disassociate myself from the literal implications of loving your neighbor. And what we do is we just make the, you just change the definition of the word neighbor. If you can just make it really big and nice and vague and in something that goes really well on bumper stickers, then what happens is what you mentioned. We end up with a metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors and metaphorically our cities and our blocks and our estates are all changing and we're just killing it. But in real life, you actually wake up one day and you realize you're so busy doing all these quote unquote good things that you haven't taken the time to get to know the people that sleep 30, 40 feet away from you. And that's what happened to me. I was a pastor. I'm running around. I'm involved in counseling and doing programs. And I was serving on the board of three different nonprofits. And after that meeting with the mayor, I'm driving back into my home. And I just realized, oh, my goodness, I figured out a way to disconnect myself from the implications of the idea of loving your neighbor to a point that somehow I actually began to think that my the people who lived right next door to me, like, surely Jesus wasn't talking about them. <laughs> right. <laughs> he couldn't have been that guy over there, right? And so what what happened in our in our movement here is that we actually started to think, what if people of faith began to, to draw a circle around the places where they live and to work out for them? Maybe we don't, you know, the Good Samaritan is this incredible teaching. But that's like the graduate, like, you know, taking care of the yeah. wounded terrorist who's in front. You know, that's like the that's the graduate level right. of AP neighboring. <laughs> and in light of where we're at as our culture, in light of where we, what we assessed when we looked around just in our own community, we didn't need the graduate level. We needed to, like, go back to kindergarten right. and begin to just do some small things with the people who, who have been placed right around us. And then work out there. And we're not talking rocket science. You know, we're not trying to be best friends with every one of our neighbors. The bar is way, way lower than that. The most powerful thing that, that we did is that we challenged people to learn and retain and use the names of the, their immediate eight neighbors. So we have this little tool called a block map. Let, let's talk we, about that. That actually shamed me, the tic-tac-toe <laughs> board. And it's fascinating because you, you put this in, again, as kind of a theoretical exercise. This sounds really easy. You know, we've got a tic-tac-toe board. We put our own house in the middle. And you have a series of questions that you ask about the people around you using the you know a kindergarten level, a, a first grade level, a second grade level understanding of these people. Yeah. I failed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, as someone who has similar, I think, interests and passions as you do about our community, that's really, really humbling. What can you explain the the tic tac toe board and sure. how you go about filling that thing out? This little simple tool has been the most powerful thing that we've come across to kind of spur the movement along. So the book that my friend and I co wrote, it's good. 
this little block map is about a hundred times better. And it's just all it is. We've turned it into a refrigerator magnet. So let's just do it here with your, with everybody that's listening. Just imagine that you, you walk outside your front door, your apartment or your condo or your home. And just think about the eight closest households or, or units to you. And so as you think about those, your eight closest literal neighbors, you have a piece of paper right in front of you. Just draw a little tic-tac-toe board. Just kind of imagine that your home's in the middle. And now just, just take a minute. Just want you just write down the names of the adults that live or kids or dog. If you really get dogs, just write down the names of the people that live right around you. And so as you're doing that, you might already be done right now. <laughs> so, and so as a pastor, when I first did this, I could fill in the, the names of the adults in two of those eight boxes. Wow. And as I've done this exercise with, with people, you know, with literally tens and thousands of people, what we've come to realize is far less than 50% of people. The numbers probably in, in that 20 to 25% of people can actually list off the names of the half or more of their literal neighbors. Right. It's pretty, and it's pretty it, hard most to... of the time when I'm doing this, it's with people like you. It's people who care about their cities, yeah. it's people that are, are really, you know, neighborhood oriented or they're people of faith. And so it's pretty this, hard to love your neighbor so, when you haven't even taken the time to learn their name. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what this tool did is it, it kind of just created just a little scorecard. So we, we did this exercise with people and we said, hey, you know what? I, I don't know a lot about, you know, I'm not a professional philosopher. I don't write song lyrics. I'm not an expert on love, but I do know this. In order to love someone, it is helpful to know their first name. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it, that's a pretty low bar to right. uh, having a relationship. Yeah. And, and so all we asked people to do was, would you make a commitment to learn, to retain, and to use the names of the people right around you? And I tell you what, the stories that started to flow in off of just that, what we came to learn is that this idea of just learning a name for many people, it's the biggest obstacle in taking the next step towards relationship with the people that live around them. And so for me, it was horrifying. I just had to eat crow all over the place when I started to do this because I had met all my neighbors. Right. I met them multiple times, but they just weren't a big enough priority in my life for me to actually remember their name. Yeah. My wife drew this thing out on a napkin. She put it up on the, the fridge. Now we have these little like block map magnets that we, we give out to to people all over the country. But um, my wife drew this on a napkin. We have the tic-tac-toe board. And I've got enough really unhealthy competitive stuff in me that I started looking at that thing on my <laughs> fridge every day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Yeah, That's right. I'm like, I'm going to do something about that. And, you know, I remember, I remember just being outside and seeing one of my neighbors mowing his lawn. And you, you, if you do this, if you give yourself to this, you'll have, you're going to have this moment in the next couple of weeks. You'll be out there, you're going to see somebody, and you'll think of every excuse in the world of why you shouldn't go over and talk to him. Yeah. You know, I walked over. I knew his name. His name was Hey Man. Okay. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, man. <laughs> I saw him. hey dude. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got some of those. <laughs> so, you know, I just walked over in the middle of him mowing the line and just saying, hey, like, I am really embarrassed. I've lived next to you for 18 months. Yeah. We, we've met three times. I forgot your name. And he was really gracious, even though he knew my name. That was horrifying. Sure. And then I, I did something really important. I went home in that little tic-tac-toe where I just wrote it down. Right. And, and there's all kinds of stuff on my fridge 
that is just white noise that I just never look at. But for some reason, I just kept on looking. All of a sudden, these people went from faces who drive certain cars with a certain number of kids to real people with real names. And, and it went from, hey, man, to, hey, Matt, to, hey, I live here in Denver. So I was like, hey, Matt, have you, like, emotionally reconciled what happened in the Super Bowl this year? Uh, to, <laughs> to, like, to, hey, can you just help me move this thing? in my garage. I just need to move it like 30 feet to, do you guys just want to come over? Let's just throw something on the grill to, Hey, you know, I know that your son's car is back a lot. Like, is is he living there? Like, how's he, how's that going? Yeah. You know, in, in neighboring, you get disproportionate results, you know, for what you put in the, the results are amazing. Just learning somebody's name is the difference between that person being a stranger to you to them being an acquaintance. Yeah. We've just learned that this idea, just, just learning the names, a lot of times for people, it's like stepping onto an escalator that then takes them down this whole new path. It's been a great ride. So we've, we've done all kinds of other stuff, block party movements and map, you know, mapping and all this. If I could go back, I think we would just stick with it. I mean, the name thing was that big. Right. One of the most interesting kind of leadership lessons in this for us has been this, you know, I, I was taught my whole life that Good leadership is all about setting the bar high and you set the bar high and people will rise up to that bar. But what we've learned in this, actually, if you want to start a movement, it's key to set the bar so low that people are ashamed not to step over it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So when you just ask people, you know, you ask people, hey, would you just be willing to learn to write down the names of your immediate neighbors? You're not, we're not asking for the moon. Right. And, and when you tie it to people's faith and to the, the, the ways that they see the world, some really powerful things can happen. Let's talk about some of the reasons why I think the book is worth a read because it's got some really powerful stories in it about things that you guys struggled with mm. figuring this all out. But a couple of things that you dealt with. First one, I don't have the time to do this. Cool. It's the number one obstacle. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? Just the notion that we're so busy. I'm running my kids all over the place. I'm I'm trying to, you know, do this job well. I don't have time to invest in my neighbors. How do you deal with that? Yeah, this is the issue. And then second would be fear. But time is the Trump issue. And this is the main reason that I've lived most of my life without being intentional about being in a relationship with the people that are right around me. I think what we've learned is this, is that most people in our culture are living at a really unhealthy pace. That's really clear. It's really obvious. All the studies, whether it be with Robert Putnam or Peter Block and John McKnight, everything, everything's there on the table that says that we're at an all-time low in connectivity with the people that live around us. Technology has driven a lot of that. There's a number of different factors that are driving that. I have hope because I feel like a lot of the people that, that we have talked with and we've shared our stories with, are they're tired of living like this. There is this sense of, I am going a million miles an hour, I'm skimming the surface of life, and I'm running from this to this to this. And the, the amazing thing, what neighboring does is it actually forces you to slow down and to begin to live in some rhythms that are countercultural. If you're going to do this neighboring thing, you actually have to be present in your neighborhood. You have to just take some walks, play in your front yard instead of your backyard. It's not rocket science. It's very small stuff, but you do actually have to be present. You have to be around your neighborhood a little bit. And so this issue of time, when all you do is hop into a minivan and a sedan and blitz out and just run all of your kids to different places, grab some fast food at the end of the day, 
get home and there's 30 minutes left before you go to bed and then wake up and, and run that script again the next day, you have no chance of actually being a decent neighbor, of being part of the fabric and, and the life of your neighborhood. And so what we've found is that beginning to dream and to talk with people about this idea of connecting with people around them, you know, there's a lot of people that are drawn towards it. They're saying, I, I would, like, it is hard. It does take sacrifice. It takes saying no to a few things so you can be more present. But it's actually, it's a better way to live. People know it. They know it. And, you know, inside they can just sense it. And so a lot of people are drawn to it just for that reason alone. Talk about the fear part. Because I have to admit, I am an incredible introvert. And the idea of, you know, going and talking to my neighbors freaks the heck out of me in many ways. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, some of the stories in the book are real interesting because your neighbors, unlike your family, who you obviously have shared experiences with, unlike your spouse, who you've chosen for, you know, certain reasons, your neighbors are this random collection of people who you may or may not gel with automatically, sure. uh, you know, how is the fear, this crippling thing? And, and how do you go about getting around that? It's pretty well documented that the, the 24 hour news cycle has had some interesting effects on how we view people and especially people that we don't know. Right. And right. so when you're exposed to the kinds of stories that we're all exposed to every single day, when you go to, to whatever your favorite news uh, source is, browser is, or when you turn on the TV and there's just every day, there's a story that just makes you like just your heart. It just crushes it. You just go, how can that be? Right. You know, that, that it's so, it's so dark that you just go, you just want to turn it off. Well, what happens over time when you, when you see that is you begin, it, it starts to impact how you view the person who lives five houses down for you, who is just an introvert and maybe they're single. And maybe all of a sudden all these ideas start going or start running into your head. And so our tendency to think the worst of people is much higher now than it has been historically. Sure. And so how that impacts us, and, and that's one of the reasons why the, the connections between people based on proximity are so low right now. And so I think it's worthy for us to identify that and to simply think, you know what, what if I wasn't going to think the worst? And here's the reality, though. We both know this, is that that sometimes there are really sick, unhealthy people that live right around us. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. But it's not as much as we actually think. Right. <laughs> so, and so there is a tension there, and I think it's important to just identify that tension and to and to live in it. And so we just try to encourage people to be smart and to be wise, but also to be willing to lean in and to just take that. What, what's that one step beyond your comfort zone? Uh, we think there's real value for extroverts and for introverts. For for introverts like yourself, you know. I think it's okay to be uncomfortable. I think it's okay to just lean in just that one extra step and to, to put yourself in a place that's outside your comfort. For extroverts, it's okay for you to actually like learn how to listen. Like what if you actually didn't talk in 90% of the conversation? That's going to be uncomfortable for you, right. but it's, but it's okay. Like maybe right. that's the thing sure. you could do. You don't have to make up something new to do. What, what if you just invited people into something that you're already going to be doing? So if you love to garden, what, what if you just actually began to engage somebody and said, Hey, like, I don't know if you're into gardening, but like, I've been working on this thing in my backyard. If you love sports and you're already going to be sitting there watching the game, invite, and what does it look like to invite somebody in to, to be part of something that you're already doing? And so we try to, 
you know, it's again, it goes back to this. How low can you set the bar? Um, we're not trying to help and, you know, challenge people to turn their entire lives on their head. And we're trying to say, Hey, what is it that you're already doing that you could invite somebody who you live in proximity around to do? Okay. So I- I'm reading this book and I-, I know that you're a pastor and I'm thinking former, former pastor, former pastor. And, 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 I, and I'm thinking recovering. Here's a pastor walking up my sidewalk, knocking on my door. I know how this story ends. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a book shoved in my face. I'm going to get a bunch of pamphlets. I'm going to be, you know, shamed into, uh, you know, you're not going to this church or that church. And yeah, have you been saved today? A a lot of what you're talking about is in in a way Christian inspired, but a lot of it has a real secular component to it that, that kind of crosses beyond that. Talk about that. You're sending out an army of, Christian people to live their faith, but you're not telling them that this is the, you know, the, to go evangelize necessarily, or maybe right. to evangelize through your actions, but not your necessarily your words. How do you resolve that? So when we started to, to work this out the first year, it was about 26 different faith communities. We all did a joint sermon series together. Everybody contextualized it to their own deal. So it was, we scaled it pretty quickly when, you know, when we, when you're mobilizing that many people at one time and they're all from different streams. And one of the things that, that we had to encounter really early in this process is the fact that some of our people, we've, whether we like it or not in the, in the Christian community, they've been hardwired to every time they do something nice for somebody means that they have to have an awkward conversation with them. And so right, we, right. we had to battle this and, and just fight this over and over again and try to, and, and just, we were, we were vigilant and saying, listen, don't go cook a sheet of brownies, knock on your neighbor's door, introduce them, yourself to them, and then try to get them to say some prayer. Like just go be normal. Like right. just try not to be weird. Right. And just actually be in relationship with the people that live right around you. When you're in relationship with someone, you share the things that you love and you learn what the other person loves. And so if part of what you love and in part of your faith and in your relationship with God is a deep, deep part of who you are, Share it, but do it in a way that actually happens in relationship and don't make it the end game. I think one of the most helpful things that we set out with people is to say, listen, okay, we think you're supposed to be in relationship. We think you're supposed to attempt and to be intentional and to build relationships with the people that live right around you, no matter whether they take steps towards believing the things that you believe or not, that that we think that God is really and that Jesus is really clear and say, Hey, listen, you should actually love your neighbor or at least like know their names. And, and I think we just have learned that when that happens, incredible things happen as, as a result. But our posture is really, really important. And, and for Christians, the, the reality is in our culture and in our day, you're working from a deficit. I mean, we, we've done, there's been, there's been a lot of damage done and a lot of weird things that have been done in the name of Christianity. And we just need to be honest about that and realize that and kind of understand where we're coming from. And yeah, as a pastor, it's way worse. People are just waiting for you to do something weird to them. I do have a lot of faith. I have a lot of hope. There's a new wave of people who love and follow Jesus that are coming, that are really coming without this heavy, you know, ulterior motive. And I'm very, very hopeful about what the, what it's going to look like here and where, where the, the Christian movement is heading into the future. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we 
focus here at Strong Towns on is the physical layout and design of the built environment. In the book a little bit, you kind of describe the neighborhood that you lived in, but let me ask you a general question. And, and maybe you don't want to go there, but I'm, I'm asking you to theorize. Yes, I don't have a, a choice bit. now, right? No, you don't. You're I'm really going to ask you. <laughs> Some types of neighborhoods are better for neighboring than others. Yeah. As someone who is not a planner, not an engineer, not someone immersed in this, is that an observation that you share? And, and do you have any experiences along those lines? Oh, without a doubt. Urban and suburban, the contrast between what we've learned in those environments, uh, multi-unit housing versus single-family housing. So we can go, you know, we can go into a few of those. Um, the, the good news is this. The idea of literal neighboring, it cuts across all socioeconomic boundaries. When you're, you can do this in the most affluent suburb where people are sitting on one acre plots and driving into their four car garages. And if, you know, when you begin to reach across those lines, the impact in, it is incredible. You can do this in apartments. You can do this in places where the needs are a little bit more visible and more tangible. And so that's the great news. When you, when you begin to share and to dream about this, the genius of the idea of neighboring is that it works for everyone. It just works differently for everyone. You know, when you're in multi-unit housing, whether it's apartments or condos, um, the great thing is, is that you're living really close and that you ha- usually have common space to use. The bad news is, is that you're living really close. So a lot of people <laughs> in apartments and kind of, that's their like refuge and they, they try to get in there and they have a tendency to close down and not to reach out as much in relationship to the people that are right around them. A big part of that is a lot of different noise issues that occur when you're sharing walls. But what we've learned is that people can get really creative about using whether it's the lobby, whether it's, there's usually a couple of rooms in, in apartment or condo complexes. A lot of times there's shared space where it might be a, a clubhouse or something along those lines. What does it look like to, to do something that you're passionate about in one of those spaces and just in, put out a blanket invite to everyone else that lives in your complex? And so um, we've seen some people have some real successes in those areas. Urban environments, uh, you know, where you're tighter in, and there's more and more diversity based on, you know, kind of from a socioeconomic lens, have been really, really interesting. It's harder to do. It's harder to make those first steps. But when people do begin to build those bridges, the relationships that come are so incredibly powerful. When you begin to to reach out and people begin to kind of cross over from their own circles and their own networks, those have been some of the most powerful stories. And I, I think that's the beauty of basing relationship on proximity instead of just affinity. I I lived most of my life basing my relationships on affinity, which means I drifted into relationships. And and when I get really honest, I look back the relationships that I have had for most of my life, I've ended up being around people who are funny and who love sports and who are rich. I love to laugh when I'm with people. And so I end up with people that are funny. I love to have things in common. I talk to, you know, I want to just talk to, I have an unhealthy relationship with sports when you hang out with rich people, it's like you're rich for a day. Right. It's sure. Like, sure. <laughs> sure. No, I get you. Do yeah. things that you would just never normally get to do. Right. And so I like that. I like being, it's fun to like be rich for a day. And so, you know, I started to like examine a lot of the small group environments that I had been in and a lot of the relationships that I had drifted into. And that's what they look like. Right. When you begin to get intentional about proximity, the beauty of this and what's hard about it is you end up with people that you would never choose on your own. You end up in relationships with people that think about the world totally different than you do. I have friends now that don't like sports. I didn't even know 
that existed. Like, and so like I, and, and, <laughs> and they, they actually know how to like work on their cars. And right. They, they can actually like do things around their house yeah, yeah. And, they, and to teach me how to do that. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard and it's messy, you know, the, all the different things that we've been in, but you know, for me, it's kind of like having kids. You, you and I both, we both have young kids, right? Kids. I don't know. Maybe your family is different than mine. Kids are hard. Oh. <laughs> like really um, <laughs> I never want to go back. Yeah. I never want to go back. And that's how I feel right. about what's happened in, in living life intentionally in community with your immediate neighbors is it is messy and it's hard, but once you taste it, yeah. once you taste it, at least for me, I, I don't ever want to go back. I don't want to nostalgize too much what life used to be like prior to the automobile, because, uh, you know, I, I just finished reading The Grapes of Wrath. I mean, it wasn't always a great place and everything wasn't perfect and everything wasn't wonderful. But what does this say about modern America that this is actually a revelation? Because my guess is that our ancestors of a hundred and some years ago would think, what do you mean you don't know your neighbors? You know, what, what do you mean you have to have an intentional approach to actually meet them. What does this say about modern America, if anything, to you? It says that the vast majority out of us are living at a really unhealthy pace, that we live in a way in which our lives are not interruptible. We live in a way in which we've lost the theology of place. I think that's the bottom line, is that, that people used to have a real theology of place. They used to actually love where they live far more than we do now. Now, with the places that we live can tend to be places that we just view as stopping off points and that there's very little investment into what's happening, not just on our own block, but in the, in, even in our own specific city. Part of this is, is about rediscovering a theology of place, of rediscovering this art of neighboring. There's a lot of signs that we're going to start trending back. And even the way that people are building now, the way that, that people are thinking there's a lot of signs of hope that things are going to start trending back. What's up next for City Unite? I mean, what are you guys working on? What do you got in the hopper? How can people get connected to you and what you're doing? So everything we do really is is in the Denver metro area. And we just we really believe that great things happen when faith and government and business leaders get around the same table and begin to think about how can they serve their city. And how can they address some of the most pressing needs in the city? And so we don't do anything at the, at the national level per se. You can check out what we're doing. Cityunite.org is a great place to, to look. It'll give you a little overview of what we're up to. One of the things I'm most excited about right now is that we've been leaning in and having some opportunities to help businesses dream about becoming better neighbors where they are. And so there's a lot of, of small and medium sized businesses who really have a heart and a desire to invest in the communities, but they just don't have practical tools to do that. And so we've been spending some time with, with small and medium sized business owners and is dreaming with them about, you know, besides the, the bottom line, you know, and most of the people that we're working with, to be honest, have, have done fairly well. And so they have enough margin. They're not just trying to like keep their head above water. They have enough margin to begin to have some of these kinds of conversations. But I am so encouraged about the heart behind many of the business leaders in our city and the things that they're dreaming about doing with their companies that I think will actually have an impact on the bottom line at some point in time that are non-traditional ways of thinking about it. And so I'm excited to see where that goes. And, and I'm hoping that a movement breaks out in our city of business owners and business leaders 
who are thinking about investing in the places where they where they already are. Well, Denver is an exciting place. I'm sorry about what happened to your Broncos last year. Maybe this year will turn out a little better. Are you optimistic or not? Very. Are you? Very optimistic. I'm drinking good. all the Kool-Aid. <laughs> That's good. You know, I, I have a, a certain affinity for the Broncos because they had lost as many Super Bowls as the Vikings. Uh, at one point, I'm from Minnesota. So, you know, we have both had four losers, but then you won and you yeah. won two in a row and, and, and you've been competitive since. And so there's some hope for me that I've taken from your experience. Well, here's the, here's the great news for you. You don't have to worry about the Vikings losing any Super Bowls anytime soon. <laughs> that was a little low, uh, <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. Dave, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This has been a great yeah. conversation and thanks hey. for the work you're doing. Hey, I love what you're up to. Keep up the great work. There's a lot of us out there that are listening and learning every time you post one. Thank you so much. You take care. You bet. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. And he had two servants. What were they called? What? What were their names? I don't know. And he gave them some talents. You don't know? Well, it doesn't matter. He doesn't know what they were called. Oh, they were called Simon and Adrian. Now... Oh, you said you didn't know. It really doesn't matter. The point is, there were these two servants. He's making it up as he goes and not. No, I'm not. And he gave them to... Now, wait a minute. Were there three? Oh, oh there he's three... terrible. Oh, there were three... There were stewards, really. Oh, oh,